Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye. Hey everybody. It's Michelle and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson. 
MSCCCSLPCLC, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Culver Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant, who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, everybody, we are depending on what day you listen to this, either closing out the summer or beginning the school year with the one and only Sam Walker from Speaking of Semantics. And y'all, if you haven't found her yet, then do yourself a solid. And as long as you're not driving or running, you know, that would, this could, you'd fall, but go check her out on Instagram. It's Speaking of Semantics, S-A-M, because, you know, Sam, and she has a plethora of resources. She's got stickers. She's got shirts. She's got all the SLP gear. I personally have her Swallowologist sticker and have had it for an extended period of time on my laptop because yes, we need that. But also Sam does so much more than that, that I wasn't privy to until we literally were like table mates at the Louisiana Speech Language Hearing Association Conference. Also, Hillary Cooper, well done. Kudos to you. That was a fantastic state convention. Y'all do yourself a solid next year and go to Alicia. But she was table mates. And so I got to meet her and her mom and her boyfriend's mom. And they are kind and genuine. And guess what? Sam was hosting the graduate student bowl, the praxis bowl. And Lisha has a praxis bowl with a larynx on top of their statue. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever, (laughs) but there they were. And she was kind of sharing about all of the work that she puts into graduate student clinicians. And y'all, they are our future. So when you're listening to this, and I'm sure a lot of you are either grad students or your new CFs, but if you're a seasoned gray-haired Botox lady like myself who loves banks, then may I give you a word of a call to action. Graduate students are our future. If you are not yet a clinical supervisor, 
then tithe your time and your talents and make our profession better. So start by reaching out to your local college or university and volunteering your time to either come in and talk or supervise, and then go check out Speaking of Semantics online. But okay, there we are. I'm a fan. Go team. Also, like, holy crap, I totally geeked out when I saw you because I was like, oh my God, Erin, it's her. (laughs) So hi. (laughs) Hello. Thank you so much for having me on here. I am super excited. Lash was so much fun. It was so fun and amazing meeting you in person. And I am so excited to talk about grad school, grad student CFs. And we love our seasoned Botox SLPs also. <laughs> right. Wait, because it's summertime, right? The boys we have, we've had the lovely nanny, Miss Hannah, who is also an SLP CF. And she kept the boys over the summer, but only Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And my Botox appointment was on Friday. <laughs> and don't you know, I had both children in tow to get like all my needlework done. And they were like mesmerized. And they're like, this is what makes your face not move. I was like, yeah. <laughs> but then the guy missed. And I go to his wife, but she was booked. So I had to get the husband and he is not as good as her. And he goes, and I quote, you have a vein in your forehead. I was like, I know. And the boys were like, we know because it bulges when mommy's crossed. And I'm like, yep. <laughs> and he goes, I may or may not have hit your murder mad vein. And he did. So I had a bruise on my forehead for like a week. I was oh, like, oh my goodness. That is hilarious. <laughs> That's Botox side effects. But this is why I go to the wife. So... I rebooked with the wife for in three months. Go team. <laughs> it's a family business for you really, and them. Well, they used to be pediatricians, but they quit being pediatricians because they make more money to do the needling. <laughs> <laughs> what a That's, switch. Right? Uh, that's how I found them. I treated their kids. <laughs> okay, let's backtrack and focus. We've already been derailed and we're not even four minutes in, Sam. Awesome. <laughs> Okay. How in the world did you come up with this idea to become a speech pathologist? And then you're super fabulously an entrepreneur and young. And how did that happen? Can we start there before we go into all of the technical course objectives? Yeah. So actually, this was never on my plan for life. I just planned on being a regular SLP for my entire life. I knew I wanted to be an SLP for two reasons. One, I originally wanted to be a teacher, but my mom said that teachers are underpaid and overworked and that I should find a specialty. And my older brother was born with a cleft lip and a cleft palate. So she had already known about speech pathologists. So she suggested mm-hmm. that I take it, like, you know, take a, you know, a beginner class in college. So my first semester of college, I took a beginner class and it was all history from there. I immediately signed up to be an SLP major. And then I, my second year of college, my mom got really sick. I just want to preface and saying she's perfectly healthy now, but she had a kidney stone that scraped her bladder and she went septic from that. So it was happened really quickly. She went to the emergency run one night and then the night after she was intubated and on propofol in a medically induced coma. So it happened really quick. It lasted about three months. She had to relearn how to walk, talk, and eat again. So being on the medical side of speech pathology for that and like really experiencing it as a part of the family made me really say, yeah, speech pathology is definitely for me, but I also really love the medical side of speech pathology. So from there, I applied to graduate school and I applied to nine schools, got into one 
which happened to be a medically based SLP school, New York Medical College, which I love. And I'm so happy that I did go there. I spent two years there as a graduate student, had a couple externships, and then I graduated in 2019. I took some time off between graduation and starting my clinical fellowship because I had gone straight through from kindergarten all the way through graduate school. So never really had a break to kind of like say like, I'm a person and not a student. What do I do with my life? I went on a whole bunch of vacations. I went to Mexico. I went to Hawaii. I just did everything that normal people typically do while they're not students. So I started my clinical fellowship in a high school through an agency in September of 2019. All was well. I was fee for service, which means I was getting paid for the children that I'm seeing. But because I was in a school, it was like kind of just getting paid salary because if I couldn't see this one student, I could see another. My caseload was pretty large. It was only an issue come the pandemic when two things happened. One, my supervisor noticed that ASHA didn't specifically say that clinical fellows could work teletherapy. So ASHA didn't specifically say it. So she didn't want to break any rules. So I wasn't allowed to work for about a month, month and a half. And here I am straight out of grad school with an immunocompromised mom, not wanting to give her COVID, not knowing what was going to happen. So I then started to draw a little on my iPad. But I'll go back into that for a quick second. And, but when she did allow me to work, come, it was like a month and a half after, you know, Asha was like, yeah, CFs can work teletherapy. I was then relying on high schoolers to show up on Zoom when they didn't even know what was going on in the world. The amount of excuses I've gotten were actually hilarious. I've gotten texts from parents saying, hey, my son just left for McDonald's. Sorry, we can't come to speech today. Sorry, I'm playing video games. I'm about to win. I can't come today. So at that point, I wasn't getting paid a lot. My clinical fellowship was extended because I wasn't making the hours. And I just lost. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't leave my clinical fellowship because... I was technically part-time. I was only working, I think, 31 hours just because of the way the school worked. Um, So had I tried to leave my clinical fellowship and try to find another job, I would have lost all of the hours that I already did. So it was a mess. So I eventually ended my clinical fellowship a little late in August. And all during that time after I went for teletherapy, I was drawing and it kept me busy. It kept my mind going. In graduate school, I knew I was kind of creative because I was always making resources for my clients, but I never really thought hard into it. Like, oh yeah, I can make this a business until I was like left broke on Zoom for nine hours in the day waiting for students to show up. I'm sorry. I'm trying really hard not to laugh because I know that it's frustrating and scary, but also your total optimism is just so joyful (laughs) that it's like... Yeah. Like the excuses I got, I, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't help but laugh because I was like, this is the life right now. You know, I wish I was going to McDonald's with you, but okay. Oh my God. We, I, I mean, I canceled the boys OT appointment yesterday, but mommy had bad Chinese food. And so there was other situations that had to be handled <laughs> and I needed to be near the toilet. And so like, I felt like a schmuck for canceling OT, but like, it's too far away from my bathroom. Oh, <laughs> but yeah. like, exactly. sorry. No, exactly. So I was, you know, it's hard too, because I was, you know, they're high schoolers, they love socializing with their friends, and now they're stuck at home in front of a computer. So I completely understood. And it was just, it was just a hard situation for everyone. But during that time, I did find drawing on my iPad kind of like an outlet for myself. I didn't know what was going on in the world. No one else really did. 
So I started doing these like minimalistic drawings of people, my friends, my family. And I was like, this is really cool. A lot of people like this. So I started drawing for other people. And then I bought a Cricut. And I was like, hey, if people really like these, and I'm kind of like, I guess, good at drawing, what if I try making some speech stuff? So my my speaking of semantics page, and I know you're going to laugh at this, but my original name <laughs> was Sam a Sam Speechy Glam. And I'm so happy. <laughs> Yeah, we have moved away from that. My boyfriend still tortures me with that name. But it started as a Teachers Pay Teachers page where I was making products for high school speech therapists because that's what I was at the time. And then it just slowly started drifting like, hey, I made a sticker. This is cool. Here's some funny pun that only speech therapists get. And it just started growing from there. And me never being a business owner, never having that on my radar, I was lost. I had no idea what I was doing. Thank God my boyfriend is an accountant because he handled the money. <laughs> but everything else, That's I was just so lost. <laughs> yeah, like, what the heck do I do when I get a one-star review? Of course I'm going to sit there in my bed and cry for an hour and then treat myself to a whole pint of ice cream. What else is there to do? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Hey, I feel that way when we get, like, if somebody does a bad review on the podcast, I'm like, I suck as a human. And my husband's like, oh, my God. Don't no more peanut butter. Exactly. <laughs> no, yeah. Exactly. So fast forward to now. I mean, I'm doing speaking of semantics full time. I do here and there. I'll do a maternity leave coverage just to kind of keep myself going. But I have mm-hmm. found my niche. I still love speech pathology. I'm still learning by helping other graduate students. And I love it. I love it here. I love what I'm doing. And I hope to be able to do it for the next however many years. Well, you're... I love what you provide us and it makes my heart happy. And I have found that, and y'all, I promise we'll get to the other stuff, but really truthfully, I have found that the stickers on my laptop make for a really good icebreaker for families, especially when you're new to them and they're overwhelmed and they're like, what's a swallowologist? And then it's located next to like a Han Solo sticker. So like, you know, we're fine. But I feel like I need to take a picture on my laptop. But what you're doing brings joy. That's my whole motto with the stickers. Like I want them to bring a little brightness, whether it's to you, you just look at your laptop, or like you said before, like your parents, a lot of the times, especially when we deal with like younger children, it's hard for, you know, a new person to come in and kind of tell you all these things that are wrong. Like, no, I'm coming in. I have these really bright stickers. I'm a fun, bubbly person. You can tell me whatever. You can complain to me about whatever. And I will be here for you. I'm not a serious person. I'm here for you. Yes. Yes. I just got a perfect picture of the stickers I will post. Folks, check out the first site, Instagram page. They are there. Okay. All right. So you had a very unique clinical fellowship year, right? Yeah. Like with with all the same strife that all of the other clinical fellows have encountered during, I almost said the war of 1812, because my nine-year-old is really into talking about history, (laughs) not the war of 1812, but during the pandemic, which more or less kind of feels like the war of 1812. So like, go team. But (laughs) Also, he might be on the spectrum when those are his preferred things to talk about. Go team. Yeah. <laughs> My family's so neurodiverse and I love that about us. So anywho, when you were making that transition, what did you find were strategies and supports within 
that you were taught in grad school that transcended and carried over into your clinical fellow? So I was really lucky to have amazing supervisors in graduate school that set me up for success. So I think having those people always look out for me, especially after I'm their student and saying kind of, this is what you need to do. Here's what a clinical fellowship was, because quite honestly, I hadn't heard of what a clinical fellowship until I sat for the first day at grad school. I was like, what do you mean I have to do nine months? Like, I thought I would just be an SLP after grad school. That was something totally new to me. And I think, you know, towards the end of graduate school, everything becomes so chaotic. You are applying to get maybe a licensing, you're trying to graduate, you're taking your praxis, you're taking their comprehensive exam. There's so much going on that it's hard for grad schools to kind of like focus on, here's what you need for your clinical fellowship. So I really relied a lot on the internet. What is a clinical fellowship? How do I apply for one? What do I ask? What do I look for? And it was hard because, you know, coming from kindergarten all the way through grad school, I never really had a serious job. I worked at my mom's job for like six years, but my mom was my boss. So it was never that serious. But now I'm standing in front of, you know, a email full of interviews for jobs that seem like they kind of want me, but do I want them? And what do I ask? What am I looking for? I think that was a big issue. I didn't really know what I was looking for. I wanted to be an SLP and I knew I wanted to be in a high school, but it's so much more than that. What are you getting paid and how does your pay work? For me, it was fee for service, which is fine. I mean, I had no idea a pandemic was coming, but at that point when the pandemic hit, it was an issue then. There's a lot of questions that CFs you know, have, which is why I kind of started to create resources for that because it's a hard transition. You're going from being a student, so kind of being told what to do all the time, kind of being guided through everything to being a clinical fellow. And yes, you still do have that supervision part of it, but you have your own caseload. Maybe you'll have your own office. You're the one that are making the plans. No one's really checking it over every single day. So you're kind of like a real SLP. You make the decisions. And that was a really hard transition for me. I was kind of like, you know, I had these really great supervisors that guided me through everything. And now I'm in my office alone with a paper full of students that I have to schedule myself. I kind of felt really lost at that point. Yeah. Even when you're not a CF, when I started doing home health, because my CF was working at a hospital, I did inpatient and outpatient. And that was really hard for me was how do I organize the the billing component for this and like keep track of my mileage? Like that mm-hmm. was something that was, I was never taught in grad school you talked about your boyfriend being an accountant, how important it would be to keep track of my expenses. Yeah. And so folks, if you're listening and you're contemplating going into work on like fee for service, there's, or, and for me, it was uh, home health. You have to decide if you're going to be a W-2 employee and have taxes removed, or if you're going to be a 1099 employee. There's a fantastic organization. They have the worst acronym in the history of acronyms. It is called the American Association of Private Practice Speech Language Pathologists and Audiologists. Absolut, right? <laughs> I don't really know what they call themselves, but like one of my very dear friends and one of my first mentors here in South Carolina, Andy Larry, she was their treasurer and I teased her because of course she's the treasurer, right? Because she was she did all my accounting and like helped me with my but she, there was a couple of key recommendations that she gave and they're, they have merit for y'all to hear. Okay. 
One, invest in a really good scanner on your cell phone, okay? Because you're never going to keep track of all the loose papers that come along. Like, it's just not going to happen. Like, we live in a digital age, right? Like, I can pretend that I'm going to keep track of all of my papers. No, they get tossed in the shoebox and then the shoebox dies because I forget where the shoebox is or I go on a massive ADD, ADHD purge and clean everything and then throw the shoebox out. So get a good cam scan on your app, right? And keep Scan whatever purchases you have. And did you know that your membership and your dues are a tax write-off? Your state license is a tax write-off. And there's apps that will keep track of your miles for you. All you have to do is hit start and end on your cell phone. Or if you have tolls or if you have subway costs, like to swipe your subway pass. Can you tell I don't live in the city, Sam? I'm like, you know, swipe it on the train or whatever it's called. But now, now, um, it's, a, now it's a tap your phone. What? Yep. Wow. I mean, to me, I haven't been to New York since I divorced my ex-husband, so it's been a minute. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, I don't in the subway because I'm terrified. But but yeah, I don't know. I just drive everywhere. I like having my car. (laughs) I'm a country girl. When I went to the city and saw everybody driving there, I was like, this is how I die. (laughs) Like, let me walk. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's quite aggressive. Okay. So what else have you found from a financial perspective? What other recommendations do you have? So I think a big part of finance, especially as a graduate student coming out of grad school, going into your clinical fellowship, a lot of people have questions about loans. Now for me, when my loans started to kick in, the pandemic hit, so they were kind of put on pause, but a lot of people worry about it and don't really know what to do. And I always say, reach out to FAFSA. My loans are all government loans. So I've always reached out to FAFSA with all of my questions because it is a scary thing to look at how much you owe and then how much you're making and realize that you know there may or may not be that much of a gap in between that. So definitely reach out to FAFSA. If you have any questions, those are the people that have the answers for you and will ease your worries. So that's about loans. What else? As far as tax purposes, definitely, like Michelle said, scan everything. If you have an iPhone now, you can scan things free in the Notes app. Mm-hmm. Also, if you want to pay for one, like a more secure one, I have Genius Scan. I don't remember how much I paid for it, but I have everything in there. Everything from my ASHA dues that I've paid all the way until my W-2s that I get every year for tax purposes. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think what else for finance. Finance is hard. But definitely save everything because you'll never know what you're going to need. I was surprised to find that my if you are a 1099 and you work out of your home office, part of your rent or mortgage, part of your power bill, part of your internet bill, and if you use your cell phone, all of that is a tax deduction. Yep. That was wonderful. So you just have to make sure that you have that and you run that through. There's a ratio. It's like whatever size of your home or apartment or townhouse is and then square foot. I don't know. We had the actual accountant do that part. I just (laughs) kept track of like those numbers, right? And then I'm trying to think what else. CEUs. Anytime you take a course, your CEUs, continuing ed also is a tax deduction. Yeah. So that that was I spend a lot of money on courses oh, yeah. because I'm yeah, right? Like lifelong learner. So remember that. 
Also, another thing with finance too, especially, you know, making that transition is kind of negotiating and knowing what you want to get paid, what the people around you are getting paid. I always tell people to negotiate. The worst thing they can say is no, but if you don't negotiate and ask, you will never know if you have that opportunity. One of my best friends got a position from an older person who had graduated, I think it's a year or two above us. It was in a hospital and she was leaving for her maternity leave. So my best friend was going to take her place. And the advice that the older SLP had given was negotiate because she didn't negotiate. And when you accept a position without negotiating, there's no really movement from there until like the next year or so. So always negotiate. There is a website, slp.careers. It's not .com. It's just slp.careers where SLPs can anonymously record how much they make with what experience in what setting in what area so that you know, I mean, it's, it's still a growing website, but I think it's a great resource so that you know what people around you are getting paid, what you should be asking for. And just so you know what you're what you're kind of walking into. A big thing about salary is knowing what your cost of living is. How much do you have to pay for your loans? How much do you have to pay for rent? Is what they're providing for you as a salary good enough? Are you going to negotiate more? Do you have different experiences such as bilingualism? There are so many different things that you can advocate for yourself for and ask for more money. I love that. Also, I'm super curious to compare and contrast that with Asha has a on their somewhere on their website, they do um, a school survey and a medical survey, but it's, it's an email and they send it out like, so every other year, the school's one is updated and every other year it's the medical professionals, but it's the only reports are those members that actually fill out the survey, right? Right. Then they break it down according to geographical region and then within that, within settings. So like, I can't speak to the SLP schools based one, but like the medical, they break it down into home health, inpatient, outpatient, and those various settings. And so, and it's, I can say on behalf of South Carolina, it's pretty spot on for what it's median based. It's not the mean, it's median based reporting. So when you're looking at the numbers, there's that. If you go into private practice, you need to be aware of what your state CMS manual is. You can find it on your state. Normally it's housed on the health and human services website. And it's the manual that dictates what the CPT reimbursement codes are. So one thing clinically that I have seen SLP graduate students transitioning into clinical fellows struggling with is not knowing which CPT code to utilize versus which ICD-10 code to utilize. So folks, the ICD-10 code is the diagnostic code for what you are evaluating or treating. If you're evaluating a patient with oropharyngeal dysphagia, then their ICD-10 code would be R1312 versus if they have chronic pediatric feeding and swallowing disorder, chronic PFD, then that's R63.32, right? So that's your ICD-10 code. But the treatment codes are your CPT codes, and that's how you get paid. And the CPT codes for swallowing are 92526. And for swallowing eval, it's um, 92601 or 92061, but you can find that on the ASHA Superbill. But it's important that you know what money you're earning. Because health spells, I talked to an SLP last week who was 
14 years into her career and making $60,000. And I was like, you realize that for every hour of therapy you deliver, you're generating $99.24 an hour for the company. And if you work many hours a week, you're generating $133,000 a year in revenue and they're paying you $60,000 a year. And she was like, that's horrible. I was like, no, you're worth. So folks, you've got to know where to find your CMS manuals to be able to bargain. No, it's, it, I mean, all of these things, it's hard to, when you're, when you're feeling so lost, it's hard to find resources. So this is, this is great for especially people transitioning. And another thing too, I mean, I guess this kind of ties into finances is your materials that you purchase do not always have to be new. Thrift stores are amazing places to find toys at cheaper prices. What is it? Once be once upon a child. Have you heard of that one? Or like, what's the other one? It's like one man's treasure is another. No, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Yes, I. Yes, I swear. When we were broke with newborns, once upon a child is a girl's best friend, and I would find, especially the one located near like the uptown where all the ritzy people lived, because we're not one of them. We're not the ritzy people, <laughs> but like they have really, really good toys there. Yeah, <laughs> so like, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to try to reinvent the wheel. That's definitely what I tried to do. And I exhausted myself way too quickly. Yes, yes. Oh my God, we just like word vomited a ton of resources at people. Like, <laughs> They're probably driving yeah. like, I can't write this all down. <laughs> I think somewhere along the lines, we get the right idea to get a transcription for this. So maybe it's in the transcription. But like, folks, long story short, I will work on a transcription for this one. How about that? <laughs> Uh, okay. So what, did you have any good study habits to help? Because I felt like when I, I felt like when I was in grad school, I studied enough to be able to pass the test and pass the praxis, but I didn't really like consume the content, the, to the depth that, which I needed when I started treating so were there any like study tips or recommendations you have for that for when you actually have to start like doing therapy solo? Yeah. So I was not the ideal grad student at all. I was, <laughs> I am very type B, the most disorganized person you probably have ever met, but I went away to school. And I mean, I was only like an hour and a half away from my parents' house, but to me, that was a way. My, my undergrad college was 10 minutes away from where I grew up. So I had my friends in grad school, but I also just submerged myself in grad school. Every single thing that I did had to do with grad school. My friends would text me. They still make fun of me now saying they would text me and they'd be like, Sam, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm studying for, I don't know, neuroscience. And they're like, that test is not for another four weeks. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm studying for it. Like, don't judge me. But I focused a lot in grad school on memorization, which kind of messed me up at the end. Because once I was doing treatment, I was like, okay, I have all of these facts in my head, but I have no idea how to apply them. Yes. So being on the other side of grad school and kind of looking back, I think the best part about or the best way to study is being able to actively recall and understand things. Towards the end of grad school, I kind of more got used to calling my mom and saying, hey, I don't care what you're doing right now. Put me on speaker. You don't have to pay attention, but I'm going to teach you what I learned today in class. Because if I could teach it to you, then I can remind myself that I understand it. 
I am old. So I would record my, this is before cell phones could record. <laughs> so I feel like I'm making myself really old. <laughs> like I had the little handheld recorder, right? And I would record myself studying and then plug it into my car because I'm old and listen to it on my commute to and from my external clinical practicum rotations. And that helped me go from root recall to case studies. Yep. And that's that I feel like the praxis has changed and they've evolved more into like case study questions than just like rote recall, but that was that was fundamental for me when I made that switch into being a CF was actually going back and like looking at like okay, but I don't need to know just innervation point. I need to know the why and what this is going to look like post, you know, middle cerebral artery infarct, you know? Oh yeah. Grad school is, you know, a a lot of memorization, at least it was for me. And although yes, grad, graduate school does lay the foundation for being a speech language pathologist. I always tell my grad students that are going into their clinical fellow, I'm like clinical fellowship, you will learn the most with experience. You put me in front of a textbook. Yeah, sure. I'll learn. I'll be able to memorize. Maybe I can answer some questions. But if you put me in front of five patients and make me work with them for the next five weeks, I will learn the most doing that. And that is why your clinical fellowship kind of feels like a dumpster fire because you're like, holy moly, I know all of this information in my head. I kind of have no idea how to apply it. I kind of have a supervisor, but I'm kind of by myself. So it forces you to kind of learn things, learn your way of doing things, learn how you want to write. And it's all by experience. Yes. Yes, but it really is. Okay. So if you're listening and you're looking for how do I make this functional, when I was a clinical fellow, I would recommend checking into your state license. Here in South Carolina, the recommendation given is that you should pursue at least eight hours of continuing ed um, because you're um, for that first year alone, because your state license is good for two years. And during that two years, technically most folks are done within the first year, but pandemics, cooties, life <laughs> happens, right? So it may take you longer. And the way the South Carolina license is you have to have 16 hours of continuing ed in that target time frame, right? And this has nothing to do with ASHA. That's just our state requirements. So you do need to be aware, trust and verify what your clinical supervisor tells you, whoever's signing off for your CF mentorship. Trust, but verify. Because you don't want to be, yeah, you don't want to be up Pooh Creek at the end, you know? But I found when I was at that stage clinically, I really relied on case study courses for my CEUs, because of the population that I was treating, I absorbed everything I could by Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris, because I was treating a lot of head and neck cancers and adults. Because once upon a time, I was an adult clinician, which is hysterical because I'm a giant cartoon with anxiety. So <laughs> I mean, it is what it is. Can you, I, can't, I mean, I meet people now and they're like, you treated adults. I was like, yeah, I didn't say I was great at it, but I did it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but that's those case studies really helped me carry stuff over. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, there's just so much information that's given to you in grad school. You have to make it make sense for yourself. And I think case studies is the best way to do that. You're attaching a person's story to the information that you learned in grad school. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. I currently am, I host a, what's called the SLP test prep, which is test prep in a game form for 
people who are taking the praxis and their comprehensive exam. And my awesome. biggest, biggest kind of way about explaining information to people is making it make sense for them, trying to help them break down the information and give them a scenario to kind of attach to it, to make it make sense, to help them remember it. Because quite honestly, our brains are an amazing organ. However, you cannot expect yourself to remember everything. No. And giving yourself grace. Yeah. I mean, that's a biggie. Your CF here, those of us on this side of it, we expect people to have missteps. I mean, I still misstep. I mean, I'm not the timeliest with getting my reports and my daily documentation in because <laughs> I get pulled 14 different ways and get asked to volunteer here or, hey, Michelle, can you come sit in on this patient's session for a bit? And which means if I'm writing, then I'm going to stop and go help and give advice where I can, right? right? So that's me on this side of it. And I look back and I'm like, I remember being like two weeks behind in documentation and with like 40, 50 notes and a couple of evals outstanding and thinking, there's no way I'm going to dig my way out of it. And you do. But it's giving yourself grace when you fall behind to be yeah. like, I need help, right? And and saying, I need help. I am more afraid when I encounter a graduate student or a new clinician that doesn't ask for help or gives the appearance that they know everything because that's for the patients that I am called to serve. That scares me. Yeah. I regularly call people all the time still, and I've been doing this for a fair bit of time. <laughs> like, you can do a HIPAA compliant consultation, folks. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. And, I, you know, yeah. bouncing off of that, too, going into this, ever since the pandemic, I feel like the family of speech pathologists on Instagram has grown. There's been a lot of positives yeah. out of it. You know, a lot of people kind of branching off, helping parents, you know, especially during this time, helping other speech therapists. But I think one flaw of it is that it really feeds into our comparison game. You have oh, graduate God, students. Yeah. yeah, you have graduate students coming straight out of grad school, ready to go into the real, real world to be a clinical fellow. Clinical fellow. I keep saying clinical fellowship. Ready to be a clinical fellow. And they see all of these perfect therapy ideas, all these perfect, quote unquote, perfect therapists on Instagram, and they try to be that. Meanwhile, you have no idea what goes on behind the scenes. Behind that picture could have been a dumpster fire of a session that they just made look perfect for Instagram. And I love that quote, dumpster fire, because that's really what it is. These pictures are perfectly positioned. Uh -huh. It's just, it's that comparison game that breaks my heart because they you know, they want to be so much like the people on Instagram when really they are like the people on Instagram. It's just that the people on Instagram are just posting the perfect things. And everyone makes mistakes, no matter if you have 20 years in the game or one. Everyone is still going to make mistakes and no one knows everything. Speechology yes. is continually growing as a profession. We are learning new things as speech therapists. And you will never get to the point where you know everything. So having that standard for yourself, expecting yourself to know every single thing is an uphill battle you will continually be on. Yes. Okay. You touched on a great thing. And I'm going to get on a very, very large soapbox and then repeat <laughs> myself again. Because what, what is it like? Say it for the people in the back. I'm going to say it for the people in the back. One, do not at face value take any advice that you see on the world of the tick of the talks and or 
program, okay? Because here's the deal. I have yet to see the one and only Joan Arvidson bust out a reel and grind it out on TikTok or Dr. Georgia Mellendrecki, who I think that they are just goddesses in our field. And I've had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Melandrecki. I've had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Memory Gosa. If y'all don't know them, um, they're, Dr. Melandrecki is the current president of the Dysphagia Research Society. She's an ASHA fellow and she works at Purdue in the Purdue I Eats lab. So if you're interested in pediatric feeding and swallowing, she is literally changing the parameters with which we learn mastication patterns. Like when I was in grad school, I was taught, you know, how to chew and you should have a rotary chew by four years of age, 48 months. Her research is proving that that circular jaw pattern should not be inlaid until even up to 12 years of age and is right. And she's a plethora for knowledge on why we do not do non-speech oral motor exercises (laughs) They don't need to be done. You do not need to put anything plastic or vibrating in a kid's mouth to wake the face up because folks, if they're awake, guess what? So is their face. But like, say it again for the people in the back, but they don't expunge excellent resources there. That's not what they're there for. People get on there to make something cute and make something showy. They're regurgitating baseline content and research that's been created by the greats in our field. So if you see something being expounded upon that this is the way we should do it and da 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 go to the source, trust, verify. And just because it's a dance move does not make it clear. <laughs> relevant. Also the filters. I don't understand the filters. The only filter I ever really enjoyed was that puppy dog tongue one on <laughs> my sister's what I call it. <laughs> yeah. But like that but I mean my kids were little so I would get on there to like by myself like I don't know I want to poo by myself in the bathroom. So I'd bust out that and let them make puppy dog faces because as a mom you're allowed to go to the bathroom by yourself. You don't ever oh, really yeah. get to do that. But like <laughs> it's a thing. Um but I just, I see newer clinicians getting taken advantage of and spending all these monies on courses taught by individuals that may not have as much experience as they present themselves to have. And they may get a certificate, quote unquote, a certificate at the end to be a certificate in this therapeutic approach. But you got to know what value you're getting for the money that you're spending. And be very careful when you're a CF because that's the basis. That's the foundation of your clinical practice. So trust but verify. Ask questions on one of the special interest groups with ASHA. I know ASHA does not do things right all the time. And I am acutely aware of that. However... I am also aware that every single person that's listening to this, if you are a CF, then you are ASHA. I am ASHA. We're all ASHA. And if we want to see change, then we have to be willing to drive that change by volunteering our time to make it reflect the diversity and voices and strengths and talents that we bring to the table. Without a doubt. Yep. So volunteer, don't just fuss, volunteer, and then buy a Swallowologist sticker. (laughs) (laughs) I have gotten a feminist manicure for the 4th of July, so go team. (laughs) I did. I painted them all black and then got feminist 
logos put on there because I'm patriotic and pissed, but we oh made it. Oh my God. I love it. I love it. <laughs> my in-laws thought I was nuts. So my husband was like, that's my wife. I was like, yes. <laughs> okay. Awkward turtle transition to the next question. <laughs> Okay, so what other recommendations do you have for navigating the clinical fellowship waters? How was your clinical fellowship with your supervisor? What was that experience like? So that's a first. Yeah, no, I, I, I am. I'm very happy to share this because I want people to learn from my experience. Coming out of grad school, I really had no idea what interviewing for a clinical fellowship speech pathology position was like. I, if you wave a cookie in front of me, I'm like, yay, everything is great. Sure, I'll take this. I am not really someone who looks deeply into things, which is, you know, I'm working on, but that's kind of what happened with my position. I didn't look for a job until like August because I was busy vacationing and being a real person as opposed to a student. And I took a position through a an agency. They sent me to a high school. I knew I wanted to be in a high school, which was great. However, I didn't ask what supervision would look like, what mandatory meetings I should be, I needed to go to, if there were other SLPs there. So it was only me and my supervisor. And she is a great person. She is a great SLP. However, I just didn't learn from her. I felt as though she was only my clinical fellowship supervisor because she got paid extra for it. She got paid extra for her meetings, which I didn't get paid for and such. So I felt like I kind of I went there in my clinical fellowship having a lot of resources because I researched a lot of them and I felt like I was just kind of like giving them to her and she was like, wow, this is great, but it wasn't so much of a back and forth. So a big part about your clinical fellowship interview is asking about supervision. Who is my supervisor and are they on site? Because it's it's a whole different experience if you have a supervisor that's not on site because they probably don't know your students as well. Mm-hmm. Do you have mandated meetings? I mean, I didn't ask that. And then my it was up to my supervisor's discretion. And I was mandated to have meetings like three times a week, an hour each, in which I did not get paid for. But she did. What did they cover? That's the thing. If she was teaching me, I would have loved that. However, we spent a lot of time talking about her son and her cat and life, things that didn't have to do with speech pathology. Which I oh may God. or may not have been able to realize that from the interview, but it's just situations like that. What else about my supervisor? Another thing is always clock your hours. Don't assume that your clinical supervisor is clocking your hours for you. I have a spreadsheet yes. available. If you want to DM me, I will send it to you. It is also part of my clinical fellowship workshop that I created. But clock your hours. Clock how many hours you are seeing direct with your clients clock how many hours you're doing paperwork for calling parents, whatever it may be, clock your hours because you never know that your supervisor can say anything, you know, not saying that any people out there are with malice intent, but you always want to have the information available for you. In addition to that, there are certain paperwork that you have to fill out during your clinical fellowship. Your supervisor has to grade you every three months. You always want to have a copy of that because again, you People can go back on their word, but if you have the physical evidence there, no one can really say anything against that. So always keep documentations for yourself. I mean, we're kind of circling back to what we said in the beginning, but for your for the sake of your clinical fellowship, you are going to want to have a copy of everything. You're going to want to have your hours. You're going to want to have a copy of all your grades because come the time where you're actually applying for your clinical fellowship, you want to have all of that readily available. Yes. 
This they did not have when I was a CF. My CF showed up once every three months to sell me Mary Kay before she looked at my papers. (laughs) And I'm allergic to Mary Kay circa 2000. When did I finish my master's? 2009. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I bought Mary Kay because I wanted to get my C's and I felt like I mean, it was never like anything that was spoken. It was just she would come in with her catalogs in front of her and hand them to me. And she's like, so what can I get for you this month? And I'm like, okay. But it was bare minimum supervision. And I am glad that we do have the better supervision requirements because, and I'm also glad that it's electronic now because that was also, I mean, I had to like, you people and your fancy, I'm going to take the praxis and know basically instantly, man, I had the take the test and then went outside and because anxiety, I puked in the closest bush I could find. And then you go, I did. I walked out the door and like vomited in the bush. And the guy at the test center was like, I see that a lot. And I'm like, well, the bush isn't doing very well. So like, I'm not surprised. Maybe you should have put a garbage bag there. Yeah, you should not. That would be even grosser. Oh my God. <laughs> but like, and then I waited six weeks to find out. But like, oy, the fact that people find out instantly now, I'm like, no, everybody should endure the six week PTSD that I had to go through of reliving every single question in my it's head. It's actually a <laughs> nauseating experience having to uh, know right there too, because the test is like, okay, you're done. Okay. Okay. Do you want to know your score? Okay. No. Are you sure you want to complete the end of this test? Yeah. It was so many prompts. I was like, please just get me to the end so I can cry or I can cry because I know either way I'm going to cry. Yes. Yes. Oh my God. Oh, oh my God. Wow. I'm feeling so old right now. <laughs> but like, those are the changes. And you know what? These changes have happened to theoretically improve the on the surface quality of supervision. But Definitely. if I would add the recommendation, find out if that person that's supervising or going to be your clinical supervisor for your clinical fellow, or if you're in grad school and is going to be your clinical supervisor for that semester, have they done this before? Yes. Who was their past clinical fellow or their past student? Can you talk to them? Find out from those people, interview those people. I mean, if you're not like, don't be creepy stalker, like on social media, but like reach out. What was their experiences? Because they may have had differences in personalities. They may have had different Enneagram styles or whatever. I mean, some people are a golden retriever. Other people are the squirrels of the rooms. So like whatever personality test you want to take, I would find out what is that person's style and prior students or CFs experiences. Yeah. Because that also, there is now a requirement. The clinical supervisor, whether you are, um, especially if you're a graduate student, they have to take a two-hour ASHA CEU course in order to be a clinical supervisor. I don't know if that holds true for a CF, but if I was interviewing for a CF, I would ask for proof that they have taken that course Because then theoretically, they would have had some exposure to what it means to be a good clinical supervisor. Yeah. In addition to that, we're going way back to and also find proof that they are actually certified through ASHA. I have heard horror stories of people just kind of going with the word, okay, this is my supervisor. 
I'm going to do the next nine months. Come the end of the nine months, that supervisor accidentally let her ASHA certification lapse. And those past nine months did not count. So get the name of your supervisor, look on the ASHA website, see if they actually have their C's and if they're up to date. Yes. You can type in ASHA certification verification. You only need first and last name and the state with which they practice. And I know that because I was a clinic coordinator at university until I lost my mind and was like, I'm cutting way back to part time. (laughs) Also, if you're a student, please be nice to the people that are scheduling your practicums and know that they are struggle bussing while they're trying to find practicum sites because everyone- It's still pandemic levels trying to find practicums. So you don't have to buy them flowers um, or bring them whiskey. It wouldn't hurt. But what I'm saying is just be kind. Just be kind. (laughs) Give grace, as I say. Give grace. Although, again, after graduation, share a whiskey. That's always good for the soul, too. Give grace and a bottle of wine. Yes. And when you meet Sam and I at ASHA 2022 in New Orleans, I take dry white or dry red. Nothing sweet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what other... Also, check your state verification on their license as well. Because in order to practice in the state of South Carolina, if you are billing insurances, you must ensure that your state that whoever is your supervisor also has their state license. So not only do you have to verify the ASHA, but you need to verify their state license is current. And just because they hand you a piece of copy of a, a copy of a piece of paper that, I mean, you don't know if that has lapsed or if there's been an event in the interim of when that got issued. You see what I'm saying? Right. Um, <laughs> and also too, just check with your state because sometimes, not all the time, but ASHA's requirements to complete a clinical fellowship may or may not be different from your state yes. to get your state licensure. For me, yes. in order to teach or in order to be a speech therapist in a school in New York, I needed my TSSLB, which is students with speech and language difficulties. And I had to take an additional test to take that in my grad school. Thank goodness. It was kind of like on the pathway of the, of the courses that I took. So I didn't have to do much for that, but there were additional steps I had to take. So definitely look out to see if you need any extra certifications, licensures to work where you want to work and always check early, check when you get your clinical fellowship in case that you need like time to study for something, always be ahead of the ball. What is that TSSLD thing? Can you say that slowly? Teacher of student with speech and language difficulties. Why? Yep. South Carolina has one, but I know we've been, it is, it's just a certificate, like a teacher certificate, but it's not an extra acronym. Oh, hold on. My internet kicked off and then it came back. It's the, South Carolina has one like that. And, but it's not a special acronym. And I am... I know there's been debates about whether or not it's even according to our state policies and other legislation that's on the books. It's debatable as to whether or not it's even legal to require SLPs in South Carolina to have that and to pay the money for it. Oh, wow. Yeah, because it's not a requirement according to ASHA and it's not a requirement within our LLR regs. It's a somebody somewhere added it to the school practice policies, but it's 
So if you are in a state and there's extra certifications that you have questions about, that's why you have a state association to be a membership of, to be a member yep. membership of, to be a member of, because it's your state associations that advocate to protect your ability to practice and protect the patients that receive the services rendered on the consumers. So, yeah. One thing that we haven't covered that I do want to cover, if nobody told you yet as a student to get an individual practice policy insurance. I had mine as a student through, I think it's Mercer or Pro Liability by Mercer. There's a bunch of different policies out there. I got that one just because it was a discount if when I went from a student to a CF and a discount when I went from a CF to a seed individual. But even if somebody says, hey, the university has an insurance policy that'll cover you. Or as a CF, hey, the hospital has an insurance policy that will cover you. Not necessarily true. Yeah. And you always want to be covered. Yes. And it's really not bad. I mean, I think I pay like a hundred or 125 a year, which Yeah. I think I paid the same thing. It was like a hundred bucks for the full year. Yeah. 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 Now when I had my private practice, it was three thirty for a year. That was expensive. But I mean I don't that's too much brain power and I want to do the other book. So go to for writing just the one, <laughs> but yeah, that is protect you, protect yours, your partner, your people, and make sure that it's, that you are properly insured and don't let it lapse. Yeah. Okay. What else, what else have we not covered that you wish? Cause could we, honey, we covered a lot of ground. Oh, yeah. And I can keep talking for hours. That's not James. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Tell us about the, what lovely resources you have created for graduate students and for CFs and where they can find them. Okay. So I have a lot. But before I go in them, I do, do want to mention this before I forget. One A big thing that is kind of like unspoken about the clinical fellowship world is you are a person. You are allowed to advocate for yourself and ask for things. You are no longer a student. I know sometimes people as students feel like, okay, I'm just going to do whatever they tell me because I'm a student and I'm trying to be the best. But you are in the workforce now as a clinical fellow. You can ask for things. You can advocate for yourself. You can see the resources that are available. You are in the workforce now. So advocate for yourself. If you have some sort of disability that you need extra resources for, you have to ask for it. People are not going to read your minds. And I'm sure you'll feel so much better once you have the appropriate resources needed. So definitely yeah. advocate for yourself. How many, okay, so I'll be honest about how bad my anxiety is. I will create a narrative in my head for each of the potential outcomes that I could foresee happening. But 97% of those narratives never occur. And yet I spiral out in those directions because I just don't take the time to hold the conversation. Is that yep. a fair statement? Oh, 100%. And I think that as graduate students, the top stressor is worrying about the unknown. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. My lunch today literally had one of my favorite Bible verses, and it was, do not be anxious in anything. And it was in the napkin holder at our lunch spot today. And I was like, okay, you're, that's a gentle reminder that I needed again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. But definitely advocate for yourself. And like we were saying before, give yourself grace. We all make mistakes. Not a single person on this world is perfect. So setting that standard for yourself is unfair for yourself and everyone around you because you will never get to that point because no one really ever has. 
But since then, I feel like a lot of resources out there are more focused on speech pathologists and how do I grow my education? How do I learn more? Which is amazing. And it's amazing that we have all of these resources out there. But lately, I have grown speaking of semantics kind of into a safe space for graduate students to complain, vent, ask questions that they're scared to ask anywhere else. Um, so I've created a couple of resources. I have speaking of semantics is mainly like a a shop. So I have apparel and stickers and all that fun stuff. But I've also branched off and I've created the SLP grad guide, which is webinars. I'm really not teaching you anything. I'm more teaching you how to be a speech therapist when you're kind of lost. So how to use a book in therapy, how to apply for your clinical fellowship, how to have a relationship with your supervisor, what questions to ask. So more things like that, just to kind of help you with the transition from being a graduate student or even being an undergrad to grad, and then more so being a grad to a clinical fellowship. So that is the SLP Grad Guide. You can find that at www.slpgradguide.com. So that's more webinars and stuff. Then I created the SLP Test Prep, which is a game-based test prep subscription. I present each week a Kahoot game, a new Kahoot game with at least 25 questions. I make the questions up myself. So I present the question, you have about a minute to answer it, and then I explain why the answer was correct and why the other choices were not correct. Like I said before, I really kind of focus on making it make sense. I make silly acronyms, sometimes we get a little vulgar, but listen, if you remember it that way, then that's that's my job. That's Uh the SLP test prep, and that is a monthly subscription currently. Well, you guys are probably be listening to this at the end of the summer, so come September, We will be back doing the live sessions right now. I'm just presenting old cahoots because sometimes I need a break too. (laughs) But if you do want to join, yeah, exactly. If you do want to join, there's already 30 or so games on there that you can watch on demand as well as resources and interactive worksheets. So that's the SLP test prep. And then my newest child is the SLP grad club, which is a community for SLP grad students and clinical fellows. I feel that there's a lot of Facebook groups where people feel safe to ask questions, but I wanted graduate students and clinical fellows to be able to join a community to communicate with people who are in the same boat as them. It's not always easy to make friends with people in your cohort because there's a such thing as cohort competition. Yes. And And mean girls, people just suck sometimes. Oh my gosh. It's, it's, it's absolutely insane because at, at the point of grad school, the competition is over. We're all just kind of working for that one piece of paper after we cross that stage. But yes, there is grad school competition. So I wanted to create a safe space where people can make friends with people in the same kind of position, but not in their cohort, so say. So that's the SLP Grad Club. It is $10 a month. I do monthly webinars on, again, things that are kind of not taught in grad school. So how to make a resume, what questions to ask on interviews time management, self-care, all of those fun things. And it also comes with a group chat. And the group chat is very thorough. There's different rooms where people can talk, where you need to vent therapy ideas. I had someone come asking about a six-year-old over Zoom. How do I keep them engaged? I gave my advice there. I also have an IPA group chat where we only talk in the International Phonetic Alphabet to help you practice. It's all about kind of creating that community. Oh, it's so much fun. I have literally not used that in so long because you don't need it for swallowing that like somebody gave me a cup with my name on it and I didn't know what it said. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. 
So folks, if you can't do that alphabet, just remember, you too may not need it in 15 years. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So those are all my children that I've created to kind of help graduate students realize that A, it's not a perfect world and B, you are not alone. I guarantee what people are feeling at grad school, either I felt at some point or their neighbor is feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. You are a powerhouse. Thank you. It's so funny because I'm so shy, really, in the real world. Like, in grad school, the first two weeks, I made no friends because I just sat to myself, ran to class, ran back to my dorm, and did nothing. I mean... When I was in grad school, my children are upstairs and they don't know the full picture. I was I was married to my very violent ex-husband and okay. I'm a domestic abuse survivor. And folks, if you are in it, get out. There is so much joy on the other side. Yeah. And I didn't you think deserve I, so I, much I, more. Yes. Yes. Mine included an Irish bartender because the accent was on point. But I mean, then eventually I met my husband and like we got married. So like, and that was I think 14 years ago with that I left my ex because Christian and I've been together for like 12. Again, you get old and you get gray and you hit the point where you're like, eh, I can shave my legs today, maybe in a week. Who cares? <laughs> that is the real life. Like I wish people showed that on Instagram because that's real life. That's what I try to do. I just try to show real life. Like, yes, I am with my hair in a bun as far up my head as possible. Maybe I took a shower. Maybe I didn't. But yeah, that is the real life. Dry shampoo is a girl's best friend, ma'am. I'm just oh, saying. Man. I have curly hair. And when I wake up, I look like I stuck my finger in a socket. So water is my best friend. Uh, my youngest it grows out in every single direction bless his heart like it just it just does and like he doesn't stand a chance and so he wakes up and his head he just soaks it because otherwise it just goes out everywhere and he's like mom it's just too much today and I'm like he's seven and he's already worried about what he's worried about what he looks like because he has a really cute girlfriend but you know it's the school secretary's daughter Oi, we can't go there. You're in first grade, man. That's what? that's like mad. Hilarious. Uh, he is his father's child. <laughs> okay. So on that note, folks, you're going to survive this. You're going to thrive. And even on days when it doesn't feel like you are, you will. And you always have the older generation to lean back on. Exactly. You are... Yeah. You and honestly nothing is more important than your health, your mental health, everything. Yes. Yes. Put that first. Make that a priority now such that you don't lose yourself. Because the older you get, the crazier and the busier life gets. You don't want to wake up one morning and look in the mirror and not know who's looking back. Oh yeah. So And really quick, you just reminded me of something. I want to say this because I feel like not many people say it. It is okay to not like a job. You are a speech therapist and there are so many different settings you can work in. You have to listen to your body. You have to listen to your brain and understand the feelings that you're going through. I left my high school clinical fellowship job because it was a pandemic and I was just so burnt out and I was like, I need something totally different. So I did home health care. I quit in 30 days because I cried every single day I got home because it just wasn't for me. And sometimes you just have to understand that 
things aren't for you, you don't like certain things, and that is okay. If people are going to judge you, that is on them. You have to do what's best for you. Yeah. Also, if they're judging you, that's a reflection of where they are in their walk, not you and yours. Exactly. I have worked as an SLT, aka basically an SLPA in the public schools while I went to graduate school full time. I worked as inpatient, outpatient, head and neck cancer. I have done early intervention home health. I have, I did six weeks at a nursing home and went home crying every day because my grandparents raised me and I couldn't fathom them going through what I saw at the SNF. Yep. I have worked in the university as a adjunct, as a clinical faculty, as the director, or what was it? What's my technical title? Coordinator for clinical. Ed- I don't know. I was the boss of the clinic, whatever that is. <laughs> and I'm not doing what I love and walked away from all of that so I could just work part time and be home with my kids because they're only going to be little ones. And there are some days where I regret not having an office. In truth, I really had a pretty office. <laughs> but like other than that, no real regrets. But I do miss a place to put all of my speech stuff and their cheesy pictures. But like, mm-hmm. that's it. That's not even a regret. So if you need to be empowered to change your stars and change them. Yep. 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 Beautiful. Yep. And me and Michelle are always here for you if you ever need anything. So go buy a sticker. May I recommend Swallowologist? And wait, what's the cookie theft picture one? I'm oh. fine. It's fine. Everything, Everything is fine. Is fine. <laughs> yep. I just made actually my newest sticker is is a little boy who's stealing the cookie and it says who stole the cookie from the cookie jar. <laughs> I love it. Oh my god. Okay, you need to make one because Bear had an interdental lisp. A bear, my youngest is was a speech therapy kid for like the longest time because he couldn't hear. But he used to say, um, he had an interdental lisp and a lateral lisp. And he used to say, come sit with me when he went to say, come sit with me. <laughs> so that needs to be a mildly inappropriate sticker because I would buy that. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, go team. Okay. All right. Don't everybody, please, the plugs, go check out Speaking of Semantics, S-A-M, Semantics on Instagram. Check out First Bite Podcast on Instagram. You can uh, make sure you log into your speechtherapypd.com account to earn the 0.1 ASHA CEU associated with today's time and check out the other I think we have almost 200 episodes of First Bite that also count for CEUs and are available every which way. And don't forget to purchase your copy of Chasing the Swallow that has been out for a year and three months. That was my baby that cost me as much baby weight as my own offspring. And that um, beautiful book. It's a isn't it pretty? Yeah. But then log into speechtherapypd.com for the 1.35 hours or 13 and a half hours of continuing ed that also goes along with the book. So there are the plugs. Thank you for joining us and enjoy your journey, y'all. Thank you so much, everyone. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. 
The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Thank you.